What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. And today we've got Kiara Mitchell. Hello. Hunter Marsden. Hi. And Gabby Magnuson. Morning. So just uh, two quick hits before we get into it. The first is from a friend of the pod, Uri Friedman, who's a managing editor at the Atlantic Council, think tank in D.C. He wrote this fantastic piece in the Atlantic magazine. It's called The Dueling Ideas That Will Define the 21st Century. And, you know, wanted to shout it out because he fucking shouted out the podcast twice in the piece. Started from the bottom and we're still at the bottom, but... We're in the Atlantic also. And uh, the piece itself is actually quite good because it talks about how, you know, the way we frame or make sense of a problem ends up affecting the sort of choices that we make and the behaviors we engage in. And he's thinking specifically about the kind of niggling in uh, like U.S. Asia policy over, I mean, the Kirk Campbells of the world are like haggling with themselves about like, well, strategic competition versus long-term competition versus great power competition. And it's like, and then there's, of course, like the Cold War paradigm debate thing. And these things matter, but they also are such so narrowly cast and so single-minded about China that it's inevitably going to like distort us like, does it really make sense to center China, a single other state, as the thing that gives us purpose in the world going into this next hundred years, right? Clearly, when you frame it like that, the answer should be no. I mean, maybe some people will say yes. In that sense, it's like a very big think kind of piece and um, truth to powery in the sense that it's like, implicitly critical of our lack of imagination when it comes to policy and our over uh, obsession, if we want to call it that, about China, which is perhaps pretty fresh coming from a podcast that talks about China every episode. So shout out. <laughs> <laughs> Second quick hit, also kind of a shout out. This guy's a, uh, he's a PhD candidate in the history program at uh, my school, Victoria University of Wellington. And his name's Hayden Thorne. And it's this a news website in New Zealand called Newsroom. It's kind of like the only really good independent journalism in New Zealand. And he talks about what happened. So a couple of weeks ago in New Zealand and Wellington, there were these big fucking like nationwide anti-vax protests converging in Wellington. And it was conspiracy theorists. It was anti-vaxxers. There were Trump 2020 flags there in goddamn New Zealand. And um, the rhetoric that they were engaging in, to the extent that their arguments had any mooring at all in logic, it was attaching themselves to the rhetoric of individual rights, right? And um, Hayden Thorne's piece in Newsroom talks about, for Americans, it's like not new stuff, but it's uh, the fact that it's sort of like made its way over to New Zealand is problematic the, the American rights conception of individual rights as being things that are individual and that allow you to like transgress other people and make decisions that harm other people in the name of your freedom. This is obviously like violates every compact of, you know, enlightenment reasoning that you could ever come up with. But that's how the American right has kind of distorted the notion of like freedom and liberty. And that argument has been used as part of like, well, I have the individual right. It's a matter of my personal freedom to not get vaccinated when it's a society threatening problem. Obviously, uh, it's probably doesn't come as a surprise to anybody that this podcast is fucking rabidly anti-vax. No, pro-vax, pro-vax. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> It's like, I am double vaccinated. I come from my mother's medical background. I have vaccinations are important. That was like the world's worst typo. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. yeah, Opposite. Pro-vax, right? Obviously. I I don't think there's any room for anybody with that thinks in a remotely logical way to, to argue that we should be able to like make individual decisions that increase the likelihood of harm against other people, right? That's not right. The, the interesting thing to me here, which is probably not new to Kiwis, but would be new to Americans, is that he talks about how the Bill of Rights in America is so 
um, sacrosanct. Like it has basically primacy. And in New Zealand, it's really not that way. Like there is a bill of rights, but it's just another law like any other. And so he stresses how like New Zealand society is built on a very conditional individualism. Like it's the individual in society. So like the rights of the collective matter and everything is about having reasonable limits. It's all, everything is about being fucking reasonable here. It's kind of like the, uh, the home of pragmatism, even though pragmatism is an American philosophy. Um, so it's interesting. Uh, I thought it was a good piece and good good food for thought, but also worrying about this crossover between New Zealand and the U.S. New Zealand is one of three countries that does not have an entrenched constitution. I believe the other two are the U.K. and Israel. Mm. So our Bill of Rights is unentrenched, which means it can be adjusted. And as Van said and was mentioned in the article, um, the rights of collective also matter over the rights of the individual. Yeah, so that's not news for you guys, but it's. I think that like for a lot of American listeners, it's interesting to note that, useful to note that, mm-hmm. and to the extent that like New Zealand is a functioning democracy, I think it's, you know, notwithstanding the the real estate market, I think it's reasonably managing itself. There are models of functional democracy out there where we don't invest our personal happiness in like the right to hurt others, you know, Uh, and it works. So I don't know. Good piece. Good food for thought. Okay. So for this next segment, it's normally prediction market um, because John Delury ate it with the predictions. Somebody had suggested, (laughs) God bless him. (laughs) Somebody had suggested doing um, an experiment where we use prediction market to, instead of like make predictions to figure out which fabulous farcical headline is real amid other false ones. Because one of the things we noticed about like Jake's prediction market was that all three questions always seemed really out there. And so, so out there that like sometimes I was unsure if what he was talking about was even real and they always were real. What we've got this time is two headlines that are fake and one is real and I have to figure out which one it is. It's very funny. I think when Jake sent these questions through, he did admit how hard it was to make fake news. So good luck on this, Van. Oh, interesting. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah. So the first one is, former manager of DOD Aerospace Threat Program confirms the existence of UFOs. The second headline is, Biden administration confirms 2022 Pentagon audit. And three, the EU's Migration and Home Affairs Office confirm agreement to allow refugees fleeing from Belarus into Poland. Oh, my God. I don't know. This is pretty good, right? This is, this is hard. Jesus. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> okay, so the first one was confirming UFOs. Mm-hmm. Second one was a Pentagon audit. <laughs> and only one of these is real. Um, I'm going to go with confirmed UFOs. Perfect. You got it. Is it really? Yeah, it is. I can even drop the file. We can add it to the show notes. Uh, It's funny because the site Jake sent through was kind of dodge, but he said it was originally posted in the Huffington Post. So we're going to take his word for it. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought Jake said that was a real story. (laughs) (laughs) This is off what Jake says, okay? But it's still still technically a headline. Yeah. Yeah. Well, aliens are definitely out there. Real headline. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I thought I had read something recently just in like Twitter scrolling about something to do with the Pentagon confirming UFOs, but like what they meant by UFOs is like, we actually don't know what the fuck it is. And so not aliens (laughs) UFOs, you know? Well, um, UFO does stand for unidentified flying objects. So that's right. The literal thing, literal definition. Um, yeah. All right. So first time doing this, one for one. Not bad. All right. I appreciate just... how Jake was even trying to like still be a pain in the ass, even though he's not here with make the it, questions. Like... Make it difficult, even when <laughs> he's not yeah. here. He also trolled uh, John with the prediction market, getting Alex to read that last really, really complicated question. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm so sad I missed that recording. That, that was, was so funny. That was so fun to listen to. John, we love you, buddy. You might, you might have ins- helped inspire a new segment. 
time for Stay Off Twitter, where we curate the best and worst of Twitter so that you don't have to. All right, Stay Off Twitter this week. I've got two tweets. One is from Seva Gunitsky. He's a political science professor at University of Toronto. He had a very good book out a couple years ago that whose name I cannot remember. Uh, but he says... The hardest part about being a Russia expert is picking out the right crystal ball. Slightly funny, but like some of the, the funnier stuff was that he got a million replies to this tweet. And some of the replies are pretty hilarious. So let me see if I can come up with a couple. With Russia, it's even harder to predict its past, not speaking about its future. Uh, somebody says, Putin. They can't know what you're doing if you don't know what you're going to do. Just, <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like there's that might actually be Putin's grand strategy. <laughs> I like how e they even bring up Paul the Octopus. In case anybody knows that's a football reference, there's this octopus that like always predicts like the winner of football matches. Yes. What? I was wondering it's what amazing. that was. People seem to think that was amusing. I'm like, what the fuck does octopus have to do with this? Second tweet from Ben Scott at the Lowy Institute. I think he directs the rules-based order project or something. Um, but he says, a peculiar feature of current U.S.-China policy is the assumption that shaping the world will be easier than shaping China. And <laughs> this is super true, actually. This actually is a working assumption in U.S.-China policy, uh, maybe not in the Trump years, but like in the Obama years, I think so, and definitely right now. And he's highlighting a quote from a White House press release. Uh, there was a background press call, actually, that the White House press released as a press release. And in it, it says, quote, the Biden administration is not trying to change China through bilateral engagement. We don't think that's realistic. Rather, we're trying to shape the international environment in a way that is favorable to us and allies and partners. And um, this is clearly what we're doing. And when you state it the way that uh, ben is stating it. It sounds really fucking just risable. Like, uh, like, are you so you'd rather shape the world than shape China, or you think it's easier to shape the world than to shape China? Um, but maybe it is. There are aspects of sort of like American hegemony in an economic sense at the global level that give it throw weight and influence to do certain things that it can't do against what at this point is a rival. One of the things that we know is generally true about, you know, in IR generally is like, it's much easier to influence friends than it is to influence adversaries. And that's the irony because like so much of security studies focuses on like, you know, theories of different ways of influencing and pressuring the bad guys. But it's really, it's like, if you have friends, then it's that much easier to influence people. And if you're well positioned, you have that much more throw weight. So like, I don't know that there's still a clear theory of the case in US-China policy under Biden. I think we're pretty adrift. And I think that the Uri Friedman piece we shattered out at the beginning kind of uh, brings that home. Like that's very much what he's uh, warning about, foregrounding. And then Ben here in this tweet is, suggesting that like we're trying to shape the world that could in theory be a smarter play right as long as especially as long as china is in this rivalry mode with us but if you're going to try to actually shape shit you need to have uh, a working theory for like how you will do that and it's not clear that we do it feels a little grab ass to me this was interesting because like i mean so good strategy you need a diagnosis of the problem that's accurate to reality, but you also need to be clear about what your own assumptions are. And we're very rarely clear about what our own assumptions are. And so, like, I think this is one that's been in a blind spot for us for a long time. And so it's useful if you're on America's side, even remotely, to, like, front up on what it is that we're assuming, you know, let's have the best analysis that we can have. So I thought this was good. Yeah, just looking back at the history of U.S. policy for the last uh, 30 years, U.S. policy has been, or U.S.-China policy has been premised on the goal of changing China's behavior, welcoming it into the international system, the U.S.-led, Western-led rules-based order, mm -hmm. uh, coaxing, it in, coaxing it into the World Trade Organization. 
and the reckoning of late, uh, probably most clearly expressed by Eli Ratner and Kurt Campbell in Foreign Affairs a few years ago, is that that goal has failed. So the default uh, policy reversal now to construct a regional order uh, around China, a confrontational coalition, um, seems to be larger of a task to go about uh, than changing the behavior of one country. Yeah. I mean, it's ambitious. Like, I don't know that it just to say that it's easier to sort of shape the world than it is to shape China is not to say that we will be successful. Um, I, I have serious doubts and reservations. But part of the reason why I have, I'm skeptical is because we don't we don't have this like theory of action or this theory of success. You know, like if we had a positive vision of what we're trying to make the world and a, a sketch, a fucking notion about how we would do that, that would be the guiding light. That would be the lighthouse. That would be the North Star, right? And then the China problem would get subsumed into that, right? What are the different mm -hmm. ways that China sort of puts our ability to do, execute this purpose at risk? And then we could sort of deal with it that way. But because we don't have that in any real sense, we, we have the like, the slogans that are largely hypocritical about free and open and stuff. There's no aim or trajectory to that stuff. And so the result, the, the consequence of not having enough of a vision is that we, we sort of default to the problem in front of us. And then that's what makes it possible to do things like uh, overreact or threaten flight or empower the, the fucking magas of the world, the hawks and stuff. It all flows from like an over focus on the problem as opposed to sort of like slotting the problem into our matrix of like how we're going about sort of executing our vision for the world. I don't know. This mm -hmm. was this was very good, you know, and um, I just think it's true, like you said, Hunter, that shaping China's behavior is not super realistic. I think the White House is right about that. And I think it's also right to focus on trying to like shape the world. I don't know that try creating a confrontational coalition is the way of shaping the world that's going to succeed. Like <laughs> that, right. it's hard to get people to sign on to that, but yeah. Well, kudos to Ben Scott. I mean, while we're on, on his tweet, uh, he, he just uh, collated this excellent series of essays at the Lowy Institute um, on regional order in Asia with some really great contributions and an interesting format from regional contributors like Evan Laxmana, Elena Noor, uh, and Huang Tiha, among others who have these short essays and then Ben challenges them and then they respond. It's a great little sort of interview, but they offer some really great insights into regional views, Southeast Asian views primarily of what the US is asking of partners um, in this great power competition, strategic competition with China and how it forces uncomfortable uh, choices. And, and, and the irony being that the US sees all these countries as sort of threatened by China. So why wouldn't they side with the US and these countries are sort of saying, well, it's not quite that simple. Um, and the regional realities that these essays tease out are really sharp, I thought. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to check that out. Evan has been a really great source of channeling what it is that the ASEANs in particular kind of care about. And it's usually pretty orthogonal to whatever Washington's talking about at the moment. So like, uh, he's a good uh, benchmark for where the region's at. I think he was once described on this podcast as the Southeast Asian Van Jackson. Yes, but in fairness, that was before you had been on the show for a while. So <laughs> maybe yeah, he, you can. He's a friend. Him. I really like. I like Evan. <laughs> yeah, he's cool. All right, Gabby's tweets. Sweet. So I've got three for this week, actually. Um, this first one's from an account called Asin Akin, who's a proclaimed internet hooligan, which is the only information I have on this guy. Wow. And. It isn't so much an opinion tweet as it is one of raising awareness to a Tucker Carlson interview where he asks, why would we take Ukraine's side and not Russia's side? Tucker goes on saying, it's a sincere question. If you're looking for an American perspective, why? Who's got the energy reserves? Who's the major player in world affairs? Who's the potential counterbalance against China, which is the actual threat? Why would we take Ukraine's side? Why not take Russia's side? I'm totally confused. 
and it's so funny because the other guy in the interview was like clearly <laughs> so what do you think man and i'm assuming that the the guy who shared this is not sharing it as an endorsement of tucker carlson's views <laughs> that was the premise of having it on the show um yeah. yeah this is tucker carlson with the fucking mask totally off and that's how unmoored we are that like you can say these putin lines about why would we side with ukraine why would we not side with Russia? And then like make an argument for why we should be on Russia's side as if Russia was not the leading kleptocracy of the world who's stitching together this so-called nationalist international of global far-right movement. Russia is in many, I don't want to th uh, threat monger, but like there are many ways in which Russia is much more of a threat to democracy around the world than China is. And I don't like to compare fruit, apples and oranges or whatever. I don't like to, I don't, I don't want it to make it like a pissing contest, but like Russia is a seriously bad actor and like a, a actively trying to subvert the things that we hold dear. It's bizarre to me that we focus um, so much more on China. And I have a feeling there are a few reasons for that. Um, and one of them, bizarrely enough, is this like, Tucker Carlson line about lining up with the other white civilization, Russia. Um, and Putin has positioned himself as part of this whole global far right thing as a like a savior or the vanguard of uh, protecting Christian white civilization. So naturally, Tucker Carlson's on board with that. So fuck him. But yeah, great tweet. Real quick, <laughs> would you be able to, for people who don't know what's up with like Ukraine and Russia, like really quickly delve into what that's about? Oh, um, so in 2014, Russia, there, God, where do you even start this story? Um, <laughs> Russia basically helped start a civil war in Ukraine, partly by sending in little green men, the, you know, like special forces who are Russian, but they're not, we, we, they, deny that they're Russian or whatever and all but like also transferring arms to separatists in the Donbass region of Ukraine and in Russia's in the Russian like mindset Ukraine historically does not exist it's not its own nation and at a minimum Ukraine needs to be a buffer state for Russia so that it, it so it needs to be friendly and on side and sort of subordinate to, to Russia so like it's either got to be part of a Russian sphere of influence, or it's got to be part of Russia, right? And those are, there's, there's no two ways about it. And so Ukraine doesn't get to be independent if you're Putin. So And those moves were in response to um, uh, the question of NATO enlargement to incorporate Ukraine, right? That's right. So this was like a, a longer running conversation within NATO. And there was a democracy. This is why I was like, where do you start this? <laughs> like the even if you're trying to do a Wikipedia version of this, it, the antecedents go back into the 90s or the 80s, arguably. But basically, like now Ukraine is in a civil war, but this civil war has been stoked and fueled and is partly being waged by Russia. And so and this has been going on for years. Russia has been mounting or uh, mobilizing forces like a, a large show of force mobilizing forces near the Ukrainian border as if it's going to launch an invasion. So it's forward positioning its military. In theory, like it raises the question of like, why are you doing that? Um, and that's a valid thing that like analysts have been trying to tease out. The obvious worry is that, well, you're, you're mobilizing forces a la World War I or whatever, so like that you can go and then invade Ukraine. And the fact that Ukraine is not a member of NATO means that it doesn't fall under NATO protection, right? So like the West, whatever that means, is not committed to Ukraine's sovereign defense. So if Russia invades proper, it raises all kinds of questions about the future of NATO given Russian expansionism, right? And it raises questions about whether we should treat Ukraine as a frontline state that we then support. But if we're not willing to make that decision up front, what are we committing to? Like, we should be we should be able to see ahead right now and decide up front, are we going to commit to them or not? 
and how, like what does that materialize as, you know, we, we don't want to get backed into a decision to support them reactively because that's opting into a conflict from a position of just massive disadvantage, right? And it means that we're not thinking through our own interests except in relation to whatever's happening at that moment, which is like the epitome of like how you make bad strategy, you know, bad, bad choices. So there's so many ways to cut into that question, but like that's, that's the problem in a nutshell. So like Russia has designs on Ukraine. It fucking always has. And the fact that Ukraine is friendly with the West and friendly with NATO and there's a strong pro-democracy uh, movement there, a, a you know functioning democratic government there, but also that there's a civil war in this separatist region and that violence is still going on. All of those things are sort of true at the same time. And the the Tucker Carlson stuff is sort of sideways to that because like Ukraine is incidental. It's really about supporting Russia and supporting Putin. Okay. Thanks for saying that. Like, you know, <laughs> it clarifies some things and it's actually a good segue into my next tweet, Oh yeah, which is from Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia and professor of political science at Stanford. Mike. And he tweets, I don't know if Putin plans to invade Ukraine again. You don't know either. I doubt Putin himself knows. <laughs> so you reckon this is true, man? Yeah. I mean, how is this not true? You know, and th this is what the other tweet that I had where like somebody was responding that, you know, Putin's grand strategy is basically that like, you can't know what I'm going to do if I don't know what I'm going to do. And that's how I'll always surprise you. And I, I feel like that's actually, I feel like that's basically what McFall is saying here. Probably like, he's dialed into Putin and Russia to a in a, to a degree that like, you know, I never could be. And, uh, you know, he's one of the preeminent, he's a hawk, but he's one of the preeminent Russia experts too. So if he's saying, he being anti-Putin, anti anti-kleptocracy, whatever, if he thinks that we cannot possibly know what Russia's intentions are toward Ukraine, I suspect that's probably true. And so we have to dot like the threat mongering about Russia we have to keep it calibrated to what the nature of that threat is. Like when I say Russia is a bigger threat than China, I don't mean in a military sense. I mean in a global kleptocracy sense. I mean in a like weaponizing political economy sense, right? And it's not that Russia doesn't have this military capability. Like they, and they really could invade you fucking crane. They, they could, but we don't know if they will, right? And the real question for like, you know, Sovietologists or whatever, I don't know what you call them now. The, the Russian criminologist, no oh, Kremlinologist. That's, right. <laughs> that's how little I know. Right. Like it's like, what do you even call those subject matter experts? But like those guys and ladies, they are looking at Russia and Putin and there are these military signals that seem reasonably aggressive slash worrying. And the question for them is like, is there a space of choices that we can make that will influence Russia's behavior here one way or another? Because if there is a space for those kinds of choices, we need to know what they are. We need to know with like maximum confidence, recognizing that we'll never be certain. Right. Um, so that's the job. And McFall is sort of pumping the brakes on imminent alarm bell ringing um, because when people see mobile military mobilizations, you know, you sort of go to worst case scenarios uh, if you're of a particular mindset. Um, so I thought this was a uh, useful intervention in reality. Also humility, because like we really don't know. Yeah, it seems like there's a whole cottage industry based around prediction of uh, imminent invasion. You know, I, I see a ton <laughs> of parallels to Taiwan, right? It, which is a recurring um, debate in the media, especially of late. It just seems like there's such a fixation on trying to put um, an exact timeline on when to expect an invasion yeah. based on force projection and, and you know, overflight and things like that. Um, but, you know, perhaps we have more certainty actually with, with the Ukraine example. Um, and yet uh, there's just, you know, no certainty at the end of the day. Yeah. No, there is a kind of invasion market, like people who. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, good, good, not good threat, good thread. 
deviating from the topic slightly because I feel like we've had quite the Russian centric yeah. uh, topic at Russia. the moment. We have an, this next tweet from Lawboy, who is apparently America's daintiest lawyer and associated with the Five Four podcast that talks about how much the Supreme Court sucks. I mean, we do that too, but you know. <laughs> and their tweet goes, apparently the female members of NYU's Federalist Society board resigned after their group uh, voted to host anti-choice speakers, which makes me wonder what those ladies think the Federal- Federalist Society is, which is a pretty bloody way to frame that, actually, not going to lie. Um, yeah. But really quickly, before you go on, Van, can you really uh, quickly explain for non-Americans what the Federalist Society is? And it's, then it's, what you think about the tweet. It's it's just a it's a conservative law oriented, like uh, you know, constitutional law oriented society. And it started out as a extremely extremely conservative, but in like a Burkean sense, they had all the normal positions on issues, uh, like identity politics issues, including being against the right to have an abortion. So like they're there, they took that evangelical position or whatever. And that's in the federalist society's DNA. <laughs> and then in the Trump years, these guys metastasized and they're mostly guys metastasized into like the fucking Islamic state of law societies. They're maybe that's doing ju- injustice to the Islamic state. Like they're, rabid they became traffickers in conspiracy theorists they were part of the same information network as breitbart um they were issuing apologias on behalf of like basically anything trump said even when he would change his mind they would contradict themselves as a result they're heinous they're bad actors and so it raises the question and like if you're on a college campus in the u.s you know this And so what the fuck are you doing aligning yourself with this body, the Federalist Society, if you are pro-choice? Like, I I have nothing to add to the tweet. What did you think this was, man? You couldn't Google Federalist Society and find this shit out? So yeah, good tweet. I, I have nothing to add. It's just like, what did you think this was, you know? Yeah, one of the tweet popped up on my feed that was I actually genuinely enjoyed the shit out of it. And it always reminds me of that. And I think someone did post that as a reply. The tweet about leopard eating leopard eating faces party surprise when leopards eat face kind of deal. It's like <laughs> it's that there was this show Arrested Development in the early yeah. <laughs> war on terror years. And like there was what is it? The the it became a meme, like a famous meme of like there was a brown paper bag in the fridge and it was labeled dead dove, <laughs> do not open. And then yeah. he, he opened it and there was a dead dove in it, and he's like, Why did I just do that? You know? <laughs> like, I don't know what I expected. Yeah. What, <laughs> oh man. All right, time for armchair analysis, where we look at a different article each week. Okay, for this week's armchair analysis, we have an article in the New Republic by Blaise Malley uh, called The Enduring Cruelty of America's Sanctions Regime. Basically, the article stems from a promised uh, policy review of U.S. sanctions, which uh, Joe Biden campaigned on. So the Biden administration did come out with this review of existing sanctions policy, released a nine-page memo, and yet sanctions policy doesn't seem to have changed. Uh, Various studies have found that the U.S. increasingly relied on economic sanctions over the last two decades. Uh, Trump clearly accelerated that process with unilateral sanctions, um, generally favored over diplomacy. Now, Blaze's article has two main critiques. The first is that sanctions exist to punish adversarial governments, but in practice, they hurt ordinary people. A few of his, his examples include Syria, Iran, both of which struggled massively with coronavirus and economic sanctions, their economies plummeting, uh, and U.S. sanctions, uh, the author suggests, contributed to unnecessary deaths and health crises. So Blaze says, although in theory these sanctions should contain certain humanitarian exemptions, companies often overcomply with rules out of fear of being punished. 
Um, the second critique he raises, I think it's a he, I have actually no idea. Uh, the second critique Blaze raises is that sanctions raise the question of whether they, uh, or the article raises the question of whether sanctions are in fact an effective deterrent against adversaries. Mm. Um, I think it's a, very, it's a valid question. I think the article generally raises some good critiques. I mean, I agree with the, the main thrust of it. I don't think sanctions are a really effective tool, generally speaking. I, I found myself sort of instinctively finding his argument overly simplified to the point where, you know, I'm not a sanctions expert per se, but I feel like a few more case studies would have helped here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Myanmar watcher. I think that's a major um, case study playing out right now. The U.S. has essentially uh, ratcheted up sanctions back to sort of the level they were at before Obama uh, rolled them back in response to the military coup in February. Um, these sanctions ha have had some demonstrable effect, I would argue. Um, you know, Blaze argues that companies overcomply because of the sort of um, chill they put on uh, foreign investment in a country. Um, that could be true, but I think that could be what makes them effective in some ways. So if you look at the US sanctions on Myanmar right now, we've targeted the military's business and corporate interests and even Indian companies who aren't directly affected by US sanctions have been cautious. So Adani Ports has withdrawn from a joint venture with Myanmar military uh, just last month um, it had a port project developed with the Myanmar Military Corporation. This is an Indian company. Secondly, an Israeli uh, PR guy who was representing the junta stopped working with the military after it couldn't pay its bills or his bills. Um, perhaps evidence that sanctions are starting to bite into the military's uh, interests. But more generally, I would push back and say that I, I do think there are humanitarian carve-outs so even when we put in place sanctions that target adversary uh, adversaries like the military government in Myanmar, we continue humanitarian assistance to people and, and civil society groups in the country. But his broader argument uh, that sanctions need to be paired with and backed by diplomacy absolutely makes sense to me. But I guess my, my broader take is that on the whole, it seems like this article has a big axe to grind with sanctions generally. And I don't think it teases out enough of the sort of nuance in when sanctions might actually contribute to a broader political vision. I mean, like in ideological flow with this piece, um, but there's a huge literature in security studies about sanctions since the 90s. For the most part, it shows that sanctions don't work. It really depends on what you're trying to to do with them. Um, but generally speaking, they don't have a very good track record at being effective, but that's not zero. Like it's higher than zero. Right. And that means that it's, it's should be seen as, as a tool. The problem aside from like the ineffectiveness, you know, or like the, this is, it's a little bit of, it's too crude of a weapon. One of the problems is like for me, and the piece doesn't even really address this, I watched in the Obama administration as we leaned more and more and more on sanctions to deal with fucking everybody, you know, and then Myanmar was like the one country where we were removing sanctions and it just happened to be removing sanctions in a way that let the junta line their pockets personally more. It made Myanmar more of a kleptocracy, right? And like, yeah. so the removal of sanctions actually redounded to the benefit of the dictators, you know, like, and so you don't want to do that either. And that highlights the, one of the problems here, which is like sanction or one of the other problems, sanctions is like too big of a category. Like it encompasses too many types of action to be able to, I am sort of opposed to sanctions generally, but I, I'm, I can make all kinds of carve outs and exceptions based on circumstance. Like, so I wouldn't be able to say like, we should never have sanctions. And even though there are people who say that, and the thrust of this piece is a little bit of that flavor, right? So when I watched the Obama administration sort of lean into sanctions heavy, it became the excuse, the like uh, intellectual expedient to not think about anything else, 
it gave you a reason to feel like you were doing something that bought you out of having to actually do something. So like it became a way to avoid problem solving, to avoid creative risk-taking, creative statecraft. So like part of our atrophied imagination for how we do foreign policy, I think is traceable back to the excessive use of sanctions. But because sanctions is so many things, whether you're like for it or against it, it should be a, a little context contingent or at least the type of sanction activity. Mm -hmm. Dictators should not be able to leverage the international banking system. They shouldn't be able to offshore money into U.S. real estate, right, or real estate in London, that kind of stuff. That happens all the time, you know, and fighting that would involve a form of what that, that would fall into the basket of like sanctions, right? Um, and then you have BDS movements like boycott, divest, and sanction movements where civil society decides that they're going to act collectively to punish a government for the government's transgressions. And so this is most notably uh, on behalf of Palestine against Israel. But uh, there's been BDS movement suggestions uh, against China too. Um, there was some talk of it in the 2020 campaign about uh, targeting Russia. And the government should like you can get leverage by aligning government resources with civil society's voice, you know? And one of the things that's notable about Myanmar right now, the sanctions that Biden administration has put back in place, it is in flow with, it's congruent with the call by like labor unions in Myanmar to boycott the junta. Like it's civil society organizations within Myanmar who also want to, freeze out the junta they want sanctions on myanmar so like to ignore that would be to ignore the voice of like civil society right and so it's too it's just too com i hate saying complex but like it's too complex of a topic to just be like it's you know everything we do is fine we have unlimited sanctions power no um and it, the opposite of like we can never use sanctions is also false right um, and so it's really about like, what's the theory for how and when we should use sanctions? What are the conditions and what kinds of sanctions, right? So like, that's something that needs to be worked through. The sanctions policy review thing that the Biden administration did, I thought it was like a hugely positive sign that they were willing to undertake this. That's such a break with the past, uh, especially the Trump administration. But like I said, obviously, it's a huge break from Obama, too. Uh, the problem and the reason why, like, expectations were always going to be dashed if you were on the left is that the Biden, the, you know, the this sanctions policy review could conclude that we need to eliminate sanctions entirely. It didn't. But, like, it, if it did, it wouldn't change much. Most sanctions are not just the executive branch issuing executive orders. Uh, like a lot of sanctions come from the Congress, and so they're in they're codified in law. It takes an act of Congress to undo them. So like they're they're sticky. And that's actually one of the reasons why you want to be judicious about pursuing them in the first place, because it's way easier to put them on than it is to take them off. Uh, and that's an artifact of like, how we do this. So all of this stuff is juicy, interesting topics. It's relevant to research. There's a lot of real world sort of nuance, like arguments for and against. I think this is a very rich area and like maybe there, there'll be cause to talk about it more in the future, but an excessively black and white view, even though I'm critical of sanctions generally, is like not super realistic. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Um, you know, I, I I don't consider myself a sanctions person, a pro sanctions uh, advocate, but this piece made me sort of resist the oversimplified line that sanctions are bad, you know, regardless of the context. Yeah, I mean, there's a strand of like leftist thought. It's it's not super. It doesn't have a ton of traction, but there's a strand of thought that says that like basically U.S. power is a problem. And it doesn't, it's not just military power that's a problem. It's all U.S. power that's a problem. And so mm -hmm. America shouldn't even have the right to sanction other countries is like kind of the line mm -hmm. of reasoning. And like, I get it. Uh, I, I feel like there's elements of that that we could retain in our hearts or something. But like, 
as a as an actual policy prescription that goes too far. Right, and it underscores the uh, less appreciated hegemony that Washington still has over global financial markets with swift transactions, for instance. You know yeah. that the the fact that so many financial flows uh, are conducted with U.S. currency and through U.S. dominated institutions, the the, the swift transfers, for instance, the mm-hmm. U- that gives America so much leverage over uh, you know bad actors trying to hide money. Uh, and governments that it wants to sanction. Yeah, this is uh, for another day. But one of the things that's simultaneously true and difficult for people to wrap their minds around is that like, economically, the US is still kind of a global hegemon. But at the same time, it's been displaced in Asia economically, to a degree that it has not everywhere else. America is it's the most it's it's the most marginal economically in Asia that it's been in in fifty years, but um, and it's getting it's on track to be like worse over time, and so we're it's it's like this unimultipolarity thing, but in the political economy. So like at the global level, it's this unipolar dominant power, but then down at a regional level, that plays that it looks very different, and that global prowess actually doesn't mean a lot at that specific in that specific geographic space i don't know i don't have like a great way to think about this so far but uh, it's just important to notice all right time for ask me anything where people ask me anything for ask me anything this week i have three questions the first one is from anonymous for context i'm mixed white and filipino and look ethnically ambiguous. I believe you have mentioned that you are too. How has your racial identity impacted how you navigate the national security and foreign policy space? Have you dealt with racial gatekeeping? Do you find that people seek to define you by whatever gives them the power dynamic in a conversation? This is quite a juicy question. (laughs) And I have like a, a weird relationship to my racial identity because I too am ethnically ambiguous. Um, when I was in the military, they, it was like a joke among my friends that I was exotic mystery race. And it was like, whatever that thing that Tiger Woods is or whatever that thing, you know, like they would, um, it was a way of dismissing my race. Right. And I, you know, you're just trying to like survive. There are bigger problems for yourself in the world. So like, I never, read too much. I never felt like aggrieved by it or anything. When I was growing up in Florida, I had more racist incidents, like a couple that were that were real, never in a violent way. And one of the things that I think has been true my whole life is that people assign to me, sometimes explicitly, the race that they that works for them, like that they're familiar with or that is convenient for them to think of me as. And so I'm often not Filipino guy. I'm, I've, I've been called Oriental. I've been called Arab. I've been called Panamanian, which like, I don't, I've never even met a Panamanian person. So like, I guess maybe they look like me. I don't know. But, uh, and then growing up in Florida, I was obviously mistaken for being Puerto Rican. Cause that was like the main Puerto Ricans and Mexicans in my area were everywhere. And I looked quite a bit like them. So people, always have kind of just assumed I am whatever they're familiar with. You know, Koreans think I'm half Korean. That sometimes plays to my advantage because like, you know, I don't, I don't overstress it. And uh, a lot of times it's for their own comfort. Like, well, we're familiar with Puerto Ricans or Arabs. So like, that's what you are. It's like, okay, that's fine. There were instances where I was sort of in, in high school where it was an actual call out, like a racial epithet, but uh, never in any any way that was like super violent. Uh, I have no trauma from it really. Although the more I go back and think about it, the more it kind of pisses me off. But that's all like retroactive. So yeah, in in the national security space, you know, like one of the things that 2020 forced us to confront was that a lot of liberals who came up in the 90s were taught that it was a virtue to be colorblind. Oh, I don't see your race. I I don't know. I don't, I don't know what you are. I don't care what you are. I pretend you don't have a race, right? And then 2020 forced a lot of people to reckon with that and like to be told that that's not a virtue. That's washing somebody's own genealogy out. 
like that you're you're ignoring part of who they are right and so it's important to recognize that a black person is black and a white person is white because there are implications that follow from that about what their own experience is and possibly like who they how they see themselves like you want to sort of like show some kind of uh, recognition of that or deference to that and so uh, in the national security space this whole time I've been in this world it's been very much the colorblind kind of thing right and when I was working on the presidential campaigns there was a big focus on diversity and inclusion among like staff and that kind of thing, among advisors. And we had multiple conversations with uh, principals and on multiple campaigns I did, where we would talk about recognizing that we should be more than just colorblind. We actually need to be like recognizing of our uh, differences, you know? So um, that's a, a shift and it's a very new shift it was only as of 2020 that i've ever heard people in the foreign policy world talk about diversity and inclusion in a way that was recognizing of differences rather than eliminating pretending to eliminate differences right sublimating differences so because of that color blindness thing and because of my like racial ambiguity i'm i i didn't have i didn't ever feel discriminated in national security and like as much as i'm half filipino and i identify with that i'm also half white and i'm a dude so like to the extent people thought i was a white guy i got all the good white guy goodies you know like people you know respect my voice in a room they want to hear what i have to say like I can spread my legs and mansplain and like all that shit, you know? And so like that was my experience in national security was like, oh, people pretend like you don't have a race and uh, that's that's fine for getting by and climbing the ladder and stuff. And like, so that was my experience with it. I, I never saw the gatekeeping if there was any. As someone who is also mixed like white Filipino, like I'm Filipino Swedish, although I think I've been mistaken for Korean Japanese and Chinese like especially being yeah. in here in Korea um do you ever get pinged by uh Filipinos that you are technically one of them or do they always be like are you sure because I've been hit with that several times too the Filipinos I've met mostly they don't think I'm Filipino and <laughs> yeah. happens this happens to people who are half race a lot with the their like their eth their more ethnic race like the non-white side like Koreans who are half Korean often get just the shabbiest treatment in Korean society. Like you're not good enough kind of thing. And like, oh, your Korean should be better. You should be more, you have to compensate somehow for not being full Korean. But if you're a foreigner and you can string together five words in Korean, they'll kiss your ass. You know, like right. Koreans love when like some foreigner with no Korean blood shows the the slightest interest in Korean culture or language or whatever. But if you're half Korean, they have like, well, you're not part of our club kind of mentality a lot of times. And I've seen that play out. Like that has happened to me a little bit with like Filipino communities. And like uh, I taught at one place in Hawaii where there was a, an older Filipino, like a Filipino lady, a Filipina on this the faculty. And she was constantly talking to me about like, I need to take Catholicism more seriously and like learn Tagalog and all this stuff. <laughs> and, like, Catholicism. <laughs> make me feel I better. Relatable. <laughs> yeah. Find a nice Filipino wife. Yeah. yeah. All that shit. So the, yeah. uh, it's interesting. The Vietnamese are definitely um, similar in my experience. You know, they, they really treat foreigners like me. Uh, deferentially, especially uh, are impressed if you speak Vietnamese mm. uh, and take their culture and society seriously with respect. Um, but at the same time, they treat Vietnamese or Vietnamese diaspora who have left uh, the country and returned with a lot of suspicion, a great uh, amount of um, resentment um, and, and sort of a big division there. Hmm. Yeah, It happens in South Africa as well. Oh yeah, you're from I South Africa, right? Yeah, I was born there, but I'm not Afrikaner. So my family is the British Irish South African and not Afrikaner South African. Uh, it's like, and I, I'm very happy not to be Afrikaans because they are the racists. They were the apartheid <laughs> people. Yeah. 
do you think of yourself as Kiwi now or do you have like a multiple? Um, multiple. So I think of myself as Kiwi, but not a New Zealander, even though I've got New Zealand citizenship because I've been excluded from New Zealand society as a kid because I'm an immigrant mm. and being told I'm not New Zealand enough. Or like socially really. in school and stuff? Yeah, yeah, socially in schools, I've been told I'm not New Zealand enough, which is why my accent is not fully British, because I had to lose that to be accepted. Well, if they're not accepting you, I'm fucked. Like, <laughs> man. The other day, my kid's judo coach asked me if I was Russian. I was like, what the <laughs> f- like, what? what the- no. <laughs> Are you, Ben? Are you? No, I'm kidding. Depends yeah. if it works to my advantage. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Anyways, good question. The second question is from Benjamin Young. I've got a question for Ben this week. According to him, what are the different schools of thought within North Korean studies? And which camp does he subscribe to and why? Dude, I don't know. Ben Young, he just got a job at a tenure track job at uh, Virginia Commonwealth University, which, and he's got this great book out with Stanford University Press called Guns, Gorillas, and the Great Leader. Many, many episodes back, we, we did an interview with him uh, about it before it was released. But to get a job, to get a tenure track job in this market, which is like the worst job market fucking ever, like since jobs were created, is very impressive. And so uh, kudos to him for that. On the question, I just shrug. I don't fucking know. One of the problems with North Korea studies is that there are North Korea studies, North Korea watchers who are basically Kremlinologists, but of Pyongyang. And there are North Korea watchers who are sort of oriented toward policy. And so they're, the reason why you look at North Korea, like out of intrinsic fascination or intrinsic disgust or whatever, like this, you know, inquisitiveness versus um, we see problems here or threats here, or we have solutions to problems here. They look at Korea and they write about North Korea in very different ways. Um, and I'm, I sort of straddle both worlds, but I'm definitely more of like a policy North Korea watcher. On the academic side, the biggest divide I've seen is on um, this stupid ass stupid i should be respectful the, uh, this question of juche self-reliance and whether uh in north korean ideology whether the regime uses juche as this like rhetorical crutch and it doesn't really mean anything is it marketing to foreign audiences is it this secular humanist ideology that permeates everything right is it a strategic culture which i sort of gestured toward in my last book and so like there's there's all of these like what to me are angels on pinheads um debates and they get pretty heated among north korean studies people about what is the proper meaning of juche and beyond that i haven't seen fights within which is to say competing camps within North Korea watching, except on the policy side, where it, of course, gets like very, you know, vile, vile and petty and all that stuff. And it was kind of like the pettiness of North Korea watching that made me look for alternative sources of expertise too. Like, I don't, this is a community that will, if you let it, it will consume your own identity of like who you are. And then you're going to like go die on a hill with your career or something over <sighs> Juche. I mean, like what the fuck, you know? So like, like arguing about the, the proper relation of like, so I haven't seen a lot of debates about like how we interpret Kim Il-sung's legacy, for example, or what are the sources of the Kim regime's rule Right. Or what's the difference between how Kim Jong-il ruled through institutions and this sort of like balance of power among different constituencies and placing himself at the center, very insecure versus like charismatic leadership of Kim Jong-un or his, his grandfather. A lot of Korean North Korean studies is consensus. It's, it's like everyone agreeing with everyone else. Um, I don't see a ton of debates. If there are debates beyond Juche that, that are relevant, because I've, I've tuned out a couple small ball ones, but if there are ones that are relevant, I'm, I'd be interested to find out what they are. Oh, and also, I don't subscribe to these things. 
I'm the matrix bitch. Okay. So like <laughs> you don't put me in a category. I make categories. Okay. And that goes for Marxism and liberalism too. Okay. Our final question is from Reed Wilcox. And I am going to try to pronounce the where he's from. I think it's Carnage Endowment. Oh, Carnegie. 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 Yeah. Dan has spoken on the podcast a few times about in hostile relationships between great powers and smaller states. The onus is usually on the great power to take the first steps in transforming the relationship. I believe he called it, called it unfucking the relationship. I'm thinking this through in the context of the US and North Korea and the talk of an end of war declaration. If Dan has any work on this, or if you know of a work he's citing, I'd great appreciating pointed in that direction man very large question so uh yes unfucking the relationship it's an important uh mode of statecraft and it's one that great powers have the capacity to do more than anyone else uh but they usually don't because they're the great powers so they allow things to be fucked so yeah there's this notion of um unilateral gestures unilateral signals, accommodations, that the stronger power in any sort of rivalry or fractious relationship that uh, they make, and then that is supposed to, in various, their mechanisms vary depending on the theory, but like that's supposed to open up space for reciprocity. So the big guy accommodates first, unilateral gesture, and then that's followed eventually by reciprocity, and then that's how you're off to the races with confidence building, trust building. And then that's literally how you transform enemies into friends, right? And so this is core to a lot of the prescriptions I have on North Korea. Like this is the invisible framework underneath a lot of my analysis. Sometimes it's very visible framework, right? Um, so I had this arms control th report at uh, Center for New American Security that came out in 2019. This is like probably the thing I'm, most known for at this point. And it's, it was kind of like the defining document about pursuing an arms control approach with North Korea in lieu of pursuing denuclearization with North Korea. And the whole conceit was not, let's give up on denuclearization, even though that's part of it. The conceit was like, we have to make certain kinds of concessions in a bid to transform the relationship. And that will get us to credible reciprocity incredible negotiations with North Korea, but we have to put in that early work first. Why? Because we're the fucking great power, man. And that's how it always works. And so the literature agrees with me, right? Um, and so there's uh, Charlie Kupchen had a book in 2010 or so called How Enemies Become Friends. Um, I teach in security studies. That's the go-to book, I think. There's an older tradition. Everybody knows what a defense intellectual is. Uh, people have not really heard of like peace intellectuals, but back in the 50s and 60s, defense intellectual was a toxic fucking label. It was a way of denigrating somebody to say like they're not serious, they're compromised analytically, right? And they became associated with places like Rand that became prominent and all, you know, the world changed. And so they became like the serious people or whatever. But back in that mode in the 50s and 60s, the peace intellectuals were of equal prominence, arguably greater prominence for a while. It depends on who you're talking to. Um, and they produced a whole bunch of research uh, that some of which lives on, right? Like uh, Johan Galtung, the concept of structural violence came out of this tradition, right? The Journal of Peace Research itself, which turned into a quant journal, but um, they focused on like civil war and shit, but that journal came out of the peace intellectual tradition. Uh, there was this super famous scholar named Kenneth Boulding, B-O-U-L-D-I-N-G, who wrote a bunch of shit, academic research that was very policy relevant about how to build stable peace. He pioneered this uh, very rational method called grit, graduated, reciprocal, fuck, incremental tension reduction or something like that. I can't remember what it stands for, but it's called the grit method. And it is basically the general model for how you convert enemies to friends. And it was the same shit. It was, it was 
the, the stronger party having to do unilateral accommodations first, and then that proceed like successful interactions build on on themselves, and then eventually you um, sort of create trust and that kind of thing. So like, there's a large literature on this stuff. I've sort of name dropped some of it here, but yeah, this is a tradition that that needs to make more of a comeback um, in particular because people who do policy are totally a hundred percent unfamiliar with this stuff. And that's a problem. That was a tour de force literature review. Thanks, Ben. Anytime. All right, gang, that's going to do it. W wait. Uh, it's been a while. Un- buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic to send us coffees. Cottonbureau.com uh, search undiplomatic for our apparel. Rate us on iTunes and all that stuff. Catch you next time. Peace.